Hi, and thank you for tuning in to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, where we of the chattering classes <laughs> continue to chatter about uh, environmental news. And as usual, we have environmental questions, environmental problems, climate stuff of all sorts and angles. But first, as a hello to one another, I will say that uh, I've been noticing the streets, as everyone probably has, covered in that bright, crusty brine of salt. And uh, I'm not going to say it's bleak, I'm not going to say it's beautiful, but uh, it's there and it's apparent. And here we are, in another glorious February day. How are you doing, Lauren? Salt hasn't been on my mind this week, as I've barely gone outside, except to walk the dog. But what has been on my mind this week is uh, Framing Britney, the Hulu FX New York Times produced Britney Spears documentary, (laughs) which, even if you are not a Britney Spears fan, if you lived through the early aughts, I would highly recommend you watch it because it is a good meditation on the prevalence of like misogyny and celebrity culture and mental health issues and in, in like and sort of like how they manifested in that era the weird ways in which we operated as a culture and how we treated our public figures specifically those who were women well and at least the thing i took away from it was like how i was affected by that as a young woman and how how other young women might have been affected but it was really good also like really depressing We were terrible to these poor women and like we destroyed their lives in some cases. Like you look at like Britney Spears's mental health state, Lindsay Lohan's mental health state, the things that Paris Hilton went through, like these weren't sort of just like passive ha 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 punching up type of things that we did to them. Like we, we stripped them of their autonomy and their dignity and we didn't do right by them. Really upsetting. Britney, if you're listening we're with you. We love you. Hashtag free Britney. But, uh, but Stefan, what's been on your mind this week? What I've been thinking about uh, a bit has been how fighting sort of these ingrained systems, you know, maybe you know, exactly like misogyny in the 2000s, can often feel like sort of boxing a shadow or, or perhaps like a fish criticizing the toxic polluted water that it lives in. Earlier this week, I was listening to a podcast called Hot Take, uh, which I highly recommend. And on it, they were discussing the connection between oil and war. Not just in that sort of memeified way of, you know, the Iraq war was all about oil kind of way, but the many of the weapons used or made to fight in Iraq come back to America and are used then in DAPL. Uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, fight in 2016. And I, I know it shouldn't really be a surprise, uh, but I can't help but keep coming back to how intertwined so many of these issues are, which I think can both be overwhelming, but for me, it's also galvanizing. You know, because if the problems in the bad actors uh, are the same, uh, then so are the solutions in many ways. And so I think that helps us solidify that shadow, I guess, that, that, that we're trying to box a bit, uh, you know, so we don't need, you know, uh, another documentary in 20 years about how we still have not hashtag freed Britney. I've uh, heard about this, but I have done no research on it. The uh, idea of the colonial boomerang, that the way a colonial state behaves in uh, those areas that it uh, tries to control 
then become replicated in this in the in the on the on the in the homeland, so to speak. It seems that we need a global transfer of wealth from rich to poor to solve climate change because poorer nations will otherwise expect to burn as much fossil fuel as we have in order to develop materially speaking. Uh, we also need nas national transfers of wealth from rich to poor because working people aren't just going to allow the wealthy to dictate working class sacrifices for the sake of sustainability while rich people maintain extravagant comfort and decision-making power. This was the case even before COVID-19 started causing an economic catastrophe of unknown proportions. The existing neoliberal order of private accumulation and public austerity, which Justin Trudeau and Joe Biden are not currently questioning, will therefore have to be radically altered if climate change is going to be thwarted from causing total meltdown. But what about the capitalist order, if order is the proper term? Most people in North America want our ecosystems to survive for generations to come. But we have a system by which most of the wealth we create is controlled by a very small percentage of private citizens. This is not just a matter of wealthy people directing the economy through their spending patterns. Any publicly traded company is owned and controlled by people who do not work for that company. And the people who do work for that company have no say in the, direct, uh, in the direction the company takes. Under such a system, climate change will only be solved if it becomes profitable for the rich. Because it isn't just that the relative benevolence of wealthy human beings dictates their spending. Money just goes where profits are. It's true that if a miraculous series of selfless epiphanies blossoms in the minds of the powerful and power-hungry alike, maximal profit would no longer dictate investment at large. But money as it stands has a mind of its own, since, literally, uh, it is the name of the game, and its accumulation and self-proliferation are therefore considered high virtues. This brings me to the problem of violently aggressive conspiracy theorists. A couple of weeks ago, Lauren made the point that it wasn't necessarily illuminating to say that a Canadian politician in support of both pipelines and climate action is experiencing cognitive dissonance, and that such a position speaks not only to the psychological framework of the politician, but even more so to the daily control that corporate power holds over the people we elect. But dissonance is also in our culture at large, since we call ourselves free, but our democracy is very limited. We don't bring average people into big decisions. Private wealth has soared while the public that made that wealth possible has no control. The average person working for a corporation has utterly no say in the direction of the company to which they devote their working lives, and very little say in the direction of the governments under which they live, unless we act collectively in spite of the structure. A phenomenon like QAnon should therefore not be thought of as a weird aberration from normality, because it's actually a product of our normality. It makes sense that people fed myths and lies by corporations and politicians should formulate aggressively wild theories. The power structures we live under are opaque, and are breeding an anti-progressive hateful thinking 
with a pseudo-revolutionary veneer that certain people find very seductive. This situation is made worse by corporations like Microsoft, which makes grand plans for sustainability while producing surveillance technology that other corporations can use to spy on their workers, thus heightening the precarious paranoia under which many people have to live. Such technology is also specifically helping fossil fuel companies produce as much oil and gas as possible. Since these corporations are not accountable to the public or the people who work for them, we're left with pressure campaigns, self-sacrifice, expensive lawsuits, and policy reform to nudge them from the outside towards sanity. These campaigns are beautiful and worthy and help reveal the innate dignity of the human spirit, but there is nothing sustainable about this kind of capitalist control, ecologically or psychologically, and it's not surprising that it's driving some people mad. If you are running a company that, and you make a decision that does not maximize your profit, you can be sued by your investors. And so that fact alone creates obviously a feedback loop that ignores any real type of externality. It inherently does. It, it basically is like, look, if you are not making the most money possible, and that includes any way you can game the system to make more money possible, we can sue you. And then you as a human being will then, you know, lose your reputation, your money, you'll be, you know, fired from your job or whatever it may be, whatever the ramifications of that might be. But obviously that in that brings a very specific pressure to all of these CEOs. Yeah, that whole idea of fiduciary responsibility to the stakeholders or to the shareholders or whatever. Yeah, not stakeholders, shareholders is something that like, I, from what I understand, um, and I don't understand a lot of these issues very well, but like that is like, it is, it is enshrined in law and became enshrined in law kind of around the era of like Reaganomics, the rise of neoliberal policy and politics. And it's what keeps organizations, businesses, rather corporations from being able to make real, meaningful, bold changes and decisions. It's, it's something that is sort of obvious in, in that story that David sort of got into and teased a bit with Microsoft and this idea that Microsoft committed to, I think it was like, it might even have been net zero by 2030 or something like that. And how like, yes, theoretically, that is a good thing. And it's a positive move that they're making. But bottom line, it doesn't actually change much about the way that organization conducts their business. There's this really good story um, that I think was was referenced from Drilled News that's, that's about Microsoft and uh, sort of taking into consideration the announcement they made last year about, about their new climate plan. But, but understanding the fact that that climate plan doesn't have as far reaching an impact as we would like it to, as long as Microsoft still can still continues to um, work for and provide software to these organizations that have an outsized sort of effect on, on climate change. And understanding that Microsoft's duty first and foremost before providing a service to its clients before doing anything else is to make money. Microsoft 
even if it has good intentions and wants to do well by by creating these internal policies for their own personal and downstream emissions, they're not going to cut ties with these other larger organizations that create far, 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 far more emissions and an impact on the environment because that's their bread and butter. That's how they make money. Um, and unfortunately, that's where the big change could come because inv- because Microsoft is a big tech firm. Um, what this article sort of illustrates is that um, because they provide tech to oil companies, it it allows those oil companies to um, expand their their work and their research and the impact that they have because it allows them to work faster and longer and harder um, than they would have otherwise. No matter what we do in in this structure. No matter what any of these companies sort of bring forward in the ways that, you know, the arguments have been made time and time again by environmentalists that this is good business, that this is the way we're going, that we have to do X, Y, Z, you're still stuck with the fact that unless you tackle this fundamental issue of direct incentives to do anything you can to maximize your profit, the cultural shift can, will always be muted. Because like, because Microsoft honestly has one of the best climate policies, to my understanding. I think it's not, if I remember correctly, it's about scope three emit. It's not. It's about scope not just three emissions, but two and one. In that, it is actually tackling any emissions that its company is even related to, and it and, and, and with a pretty aggressive timeline. And you know, given the size of Microsoft, that's actually huge. But that doesn't change their underlying. Oh, goal, which is exclusively and has to be exclusively because of the system setup to just make money. And, and, and so like, I think you're always going to be muted in all of these types of changes you might hope for because of that fact, right? Like yeah. you're, 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 no matter what you do, you're, you're still going to be stuck in the culture that exists right now, which still prioritizes profit. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're still working within this Within these, within the constraints of me, be able to go so far before bumping up against the walls that that the system has in place. Uh, so the only answer, therefore, is to dismantle said model and said system. If you learn about the history of advertising, you learn that for a long time it was just straight up telling you what it did, and then at some point, and I think around the twenties or early early nine hundreds, it sort of shifted to be like convincing you you had a problem that it could fix. And I think that that shift in advertising, now a hundred years later, has become to a point where every industry is constantly telling you that they are great and that they are doing good things and they are helping you. And everyone's experience of the world is that that can't be true because the world is a garbage fire. And so. I think especially the ways that, you know, natural health enthusiasts fall into anti-vaxxing, for example, right? Like, I think those kind of things, you can follow a trajectory of like, I was lied to that I thought that this pharmaceutical I was on forever was going to solve my problem. And it turned out it was just, you know, it was the opioid crisis, for example. And and now I'm distrustful of all healthcare practitioners is not an unreasonable one-two step to, to exist within the system. You see that especially with like, so oftentimes it's like a woman will go to her doctor complaining of some sort of pain and that doctor will discount that pain, say, oh, it's just systemic ache. Oh, go home for that woman to then later find out 10 years and four doctors later that she had endometriosis or something like that. Like, that's just a random example. But like, yeah, you can completely understand how people 
then turn to um, functional medicine or um, alternative medicines. And then from there, increasing their distrust of traditional Western medicine and falling into this idea that vaccines are bad for you or whatever. I think you see that everywhere where the institutional response gets co-opted by by say the pharmaceutical industry the oil industry and and these things and so therefore you then lose trust in all institutions because of the fact that you know if and I think that's the big worry I think of so often other people trying to do good cozy up too much to these industries and then discredit themselves and that you see that everywhere you see, I think especially you see that in the 1990s in regards to the environmental movement how often so many cozied up to power as a way to gain as a way to gain more you know get green power but ultimately lost the tr trust of the public because they were pushing you know recycling which has been proven to be basically a scam by the oil industry and still recycle don't get me wrong but it, but all of those things, I think, leading up do create this culture of distrust, which I think totally lays into this, you know, lets people, you know, continue. It was Sigmund Freud's nephew who, uh, who altered advertising and political campaigning in the United States by taking his psychological ideas and applying them to advertising and getting people and attempting to and successfully getting uh, an emotional attachment to products rather than a logical attachment to products. It's not... And the, the advertising became no longer, you need this because it's good in this way. It's now, you need to identify with this. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but I fully remember like one of the, sitting in like first year 101 psych and it being like, what jobs can somebody who has a psychology major go into? And one of them was was like advertising, that they were like headhunted to yeah. work for, for ad agencies. A U.S. federal judge has decided not to decide until April 9th whether the Dakota Access Pipeline should be shut down while a new environmental impact assessment is completed. A federal appeals court in January agreed with a lower court that the pipeline is operating illegally. The pipeline was built four years ago after private security and police violently removed indigenous protesters with attack dogs and water cannons in the middle of winter. The pipeline runs from North Dakota to Illinois and is owned by Energy Transfer, whose CEO is supposed to predict the future earnings of the company on February 17th. They are currently planning an expansion of the existing line. Canada, meanwhile, has doubled down on our support for the Enbridge Line 3 replacement pipeline that is currently being built through northern Minnesota. The Red Lake and White Earth Chippewa Nations along with the Sierra Club and Honor the Earth, recently lost a request for an appeals court to pause uh, construction. Enbridge says the old line is so corroded that it's running at half capacity and so needs replacement. The pipeline's opponents argued that a likely spill will ruin local waters, livelihood, and heritage, while the court ruled that no environmental problems will be permanent or irreversible. Both Justin Trudeau, and Kirsten Hillman, Canada's ambassador to the U.S., have recently said that they want Biden to allow oil to flow freely over the border. And our federal natural resources minister, Seamus O'Regan, has also recently come out in support of Line 3. Biden, of course, recently canceled Keystone XL, rejoined Paris, fast-tracked renewable energy projects, 
ordered federal agencies to buy EVs and clean energy, started researching how to pay farmers to sequester carbon, required 40% of the benefits from climate spending to go to disadvantaged communities, formed a group to focus on investments in fossil fuel communities, formed a civilian climate corps, paused new drilling leases, started reviewing existing leases, and vowed to end federal subsidies of fossil fuels. There have already been, however, 31 new drilling permits authorized for federal lands and waters from existing leases, and the Interior Department said that the pause on new leases will expire March 30th and does not mean an end to drilling permits and doesn't apply to tribal lands. In addition, Biden's executive order ending federal fossil fuel subsidies only applies to around 20% of existing subsidies, since the rest are managed by Congress and would have to go through that process. And as Shannon Osaka writes for Grist, quote, subsidies aren't blank checks from the government. They usually take the form of tax breaks, regulatory loopholes, or anything else that gives a particular industry a leg up. The estimates for the U.S. Uh, run from around $20 billion to as much as $650 billion a year, if you think that fossil fuel companies should be paying the government for all the damages from their pollution. Back in Canada, our Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson recently published an article in the National Observer in which he assures us that Canada will be America's ally in fighting climate change, writing, quote, Canadians want to be at the forefront of this change, and that is where Biden will find us as he looks to implement his environmental and economic agenda. No doubt he will be looking for strong allies in the fight against climate change, and he will find none more resilient and determined than right here in Canada. I feel like we could have almost an entire episode dunking on Wilkinson's piece, but I, I will agree with him uh, in one sentence, which is I do think that Canadians do want to be at the forefront of this effort. I do not and have not seen the federal government agreeing with them. And if I had to, there's an article that came out in the National Observer recently titled, uh, Canada pledges to strengthen its 2030 climate targets. How ambitious should they be? It's written by Barry Saxifrage, um, and there is a very illuminating graph in this in this presentation, which is basically about climate pollution since between 1990 and 2018, and it shows the G7 countries. Uh, so you know Canada amongst its sort of its its you know peers, and between 1990. And in 2018, the UK saw its emissions drop 42%. Uh, the EU generally saw its emissions drop 25%. And the uh, Japan is, is not the number isn't listed here, but it's just under 1990 levels. The United States uh, actually goes to 2019, not 2018, and it almost hits back down to zero, like basically same as 1990 levels. Canada increased its emissions by 21%. Every other nation of the G7 nations have seen their missions at least move in the right direction. And Canada is a complete outlier in this. Like, like 
the, if you look at the way the graph works, a, a number of them did jump in the same way that Canada did in you know in the early place, but almost all of them have every one of them has seen them basically drop back down. Whereas Canada saw a rebound exactly where you know where right around I think 2000 the the dip in Canada's graph is from the recession, and then at the end of the 2008 recession, Canada's like you know what we should keep doing totally doubling and tripling down on fossil fuels. Let's keep it up. And so to then write this article and pretend in any way that we are the good guys in this scenario is ludicrous. Like, it's, it is a miracle of maple-washing marketing that Canadians get to think of themselves as climate good people in comparison to other nations, given the actual data of how much emissions it, we have released and our own experience of... Uh, you know, admitting things. It's it's unbelievable to me. Obsessed with the term maple washing. Now I want to go have pancakes for dinner. But um, but no, the only the only thing I wrote down under like this this piece this segment was just like embarrassing because that's that's the only thing I could think of while I was reading this asinine op-ed or letter to the editor or submission or whatever this this piece is from Jonathan Wilkinson apparently is that it's. It's an embarrassment. And what I really, really need is for someone, maybe me, maybe somebody else to write a response to this and also get it published in the National Observer. Because like, for what it's worth, Jonathan, Mr. Wilkinson, Minister Wilkinson does make a valiant effort to like trot out his accomplishments. Like, we welcome you back to Paris. We have our pan-Canadian framework. We've made electric vehicles more accessible and we have a strengthened plan that came out in December. And it's like, yeah, dude, but bottom line, the it's like, it's nice that you're congratulating Biden on re-entering Paris. But the very first thing you said to him was, are you sure you want to cancel my pipeline? I really like it. And I hope you'll keep it around. Like it's, it's mortifying. And the thing is, it's like, not only like most Canadians know that this is like a hokey act but like so does the international community like you're not fooling anybody I really don't know who this act is for other than like middle of the road liberals who kind of care about climate but like are content to just sort of agree with whatever they're spoon-fed and that sounds really mean and disparaging and critical and it's not meant to be I'm just really annoyed because like I don't know who else would possibly believe this load of hooey that we are in any way a climate leader as a country for the very reason you said, Stefan. Our our emissions have gone up 21% since 1990. And like last week, I was harping on this when it was just Dave and I, like, poor guy, you had to listen to me be like, we have a horrible index. We're like number 57 out of 61 or whatever. Can't even remember what the freaking report was anymore. But it's like, yeah, I don't I don't quite know who they're trying to convince other than, like I said, middle of the road liberals, because at one point there's this really bizarre paragraph where they're just like where they're just comparing the liberal party to the conservative party and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, nope, nobody cares. Nobody's asking about the conservatives right now. Maybe this is coming out now because they're attempting to to like sort of like ride on the coattails of what Biden's been doing and they know an election's coming up. So they're trying to like lay the groundwork now for being like, we're the liberals. We're the only reasonable climate party. And like, maybe that's what this is, but yeah, I really, really need somebody to write a response to this where they like sort of systematically go through and either like discredit or rebuff or contradict all of his points. 
because this is just silliness. The one other piece of thing here is important to note is the, the the point on subsidies that Shannon Osaka writes about Grist, about how they aren't just sort of this like money to the oil industry. I believe a good percentage of Canadian uh, oil subsidies, quote unquote, are for the aviation industry. And um, and it's to make flying cheaper. And there, I'm, I, I, next week, we should have a, uh, a guest from the UK uh, who they just released a paper called... Uh, the paper is about a just transition for the aviation industry. And to, this is a, both, I think, very important topic, but also just to point out that, like, all, Canada also gives incredibly high amounts of subsidies to our fossil fuel companies, or to fossil fuels in general. And so it's not just that our emissions have risen. They've risen because we have supported these industries in all these backwards ways. What, what blows my mind about that is that I totally believe that a bunch of our money goes towards... Um, uh, airline industry subsidies, but what truly sort of boggles the mind there is that so many people in the airline industry have lost their jobs as a result of COVID-19, and those airline industries haven't supported them very well, at least not in Canada. And then, let's say post-COVID or pre-COVID when the industries are, are operating normally, how is it that our airline industries are so heavily subsidized, and yet it is cheaper for me to fly to Europe than it is for me to fly to Vancouver? I don't understand. Someone make it make sense.
a song called Steve and Fatima by the artist Deadbeat. Thank you so very much. A court in France has ruled in favor of four environmental groups and two million French citizens that France is guilty of failing to meet its Paris Agreement targets. Greenpeace, Oxfam, the Nicolas Hulot Foundation, and Our Shared Responsibility garnered two million signatures in a month for their petition in 2019 and subsequently filed suit. 
the court did not find the French government financially responsible for its environmental failure, but that it should be held liable for ecological damage, and explicitly recognized that ecological damage was caused by France's not having lived up to its climate commitments. The court will also decide within two months whether to suggest any particular actions for the government to take. We've covered a bunch of these, and each time they win, I get excited because that is, we, we it has actually influenced policy in a couple places. Uh, but, but like, I'm I'm in, I'm I'm truly interested in the ways that this system works. You know what. And how can these courts hold the government accountable? Uh, to me, every time these comes in, these these issues come into place. I am truly intrigued, and I this is something I, I want to do more deeper work. So, if anyone has actually, you know, listeners, if you have any suggestions of of examples of this kind of policy, of this kind of work, and of courts forcing governments to take amorphous action because i think that's the thing about it it's like it's one thing to see like you must ban this substance it's nothing to be like find a way to remove carbon because you're causing harm um it i would love to know about it because it is such an interesting topic for me about the ways in which you know the courts try to hold government accountable in the ways they can and cannot uh and so you know huge kudos and hopefully that we can get somewhere but you know, fascinating that the court is going to actually get to decide what suggestions they might place out. That's also interesting. Like, the, the court is going to solve this problem? Like, everything about this is interesting to me. But do you, Lauren? Yeah, no, it's really exciting. Um, like, like with this one, it's like, yes, Greenpeace and the other organizations involved only got one euro because it was sort of uh, a, a token um, in 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 the in the case of the ruling though it is a landmark ruling i think one of the things that i really honed in on reading this piece about the french lawsuit is it was giving examples of, of other countries where similar lawsuits have taken place and one that really jumped out at me was um an, an irish case also from 22 or, or 22 oh my god 2020 is the year um and it was a uh, friends of the irish environment versus the government of ireland and it was ireland's supreme court uh quote unquote, next to the country's 2017 national mitigation plan because it wasn't compliant with their 2015 Climate Action and Low Carbon Development Act. And I think what's really neat there is the government, they found that the plan sort of, again, quote unquote, fell well short of requirements and determined that the government had to then go back to the drawing board and create an entirely new plan, which to me, it's like, yeah, it's, it's maybe not the, the, the court laying down exactly what it is they need to do policy-wise, but it's them saying, this plan is insufficient. There's a major gap here that is demonstrable. You need to go back and make it so your 2017 plan actually fills those gaps that, that were laid out in 2015. So it's like, that's an example to me of seemingly like those mechanisms being in place for for like repercussion and actual um like legal responsibility, which is really cool. And would be awesome to see. And I mean, God, I feel like I talk about Canada's potential accountability act all the time, but like a reminder that as it is, even when Canada's accountability act gets passed, there's nothing that there isn't actually any um, liability. liability. There is no liability there if the government fails to meet its, its climate targets. So we, again, another example where Canada has a, has a long way to go, even just to catch up with the quote unquote climate leaders in Europe. 
Isn't it similar to the way that if if a country declares a climate emergency or a city declares a climate emergency, and then it's just that the citizens or whoever wants to exert influence then can say, "Look, you declared a climate emergency, so you should do something." And it's like it's it's symbolic of a like a collective notion of like logic and and the continuity of language. So in France, like this is. Is it not a, a symbolic measure for so everybody can be like, look, our courts, our justice system, and if we're sticking to a notion of shared justice collectively as a society, you should do this, and it it, 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 just, it just it puts a pressure in the air against the government. Well, yeah, and it does it does you could arguably say set that legal precedent. So whereas this particular court ruling the the winnings or the compensation was only one euro per organization. But with this court ruling and the successful court ruling, I think what that means is that there's then a legal precedent for when future court cases are brought in, they can say, well, 2021's case of X versus X states that like this is a legitimate legal argument. So so yeah, it could, it could be built on theoretically, I would imagine. Someone might be held financially or criminally liable potentially in the future at some point. Mm-hmm. I would think. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think it does have a little more. It, I think the courts holding it is more powerful, I think, than declaring climate emergency. Declaring climate emergency so often is like almost purely symbolic, you, sometimes with some other missions. But the courts, I think, actually have a little more power. But but I think in the sense, I think David was just referring to like sort of the the concept of like setting a precedent, which is like, yes. Yeah. Well, what, you, you often mention Canada's, well, you, you, well, you've mentioned Canada's accountability framework now. A couple of times, Lauren. So even even in the context of our accountability framework, we're holding ourselves accountable for something. It has to kind of be compared because like I do know that from what I understand, I can't, can't recall exactly what they are. But in the UK's case, for example, the UK's accountability policy is often the one that people bring up because it's been so successful. Um, there is a legal liability there, not a criminal liability, but a legal one in the sense that I think there might be either financial repercussions or something like that. But in Canada's case, in this in this um, sort of prospective policy or bill they've put forward that needs to still go through the amendment process and everything, there is no legal liability or um, necessity for the government to meet its commitments within climate policy. The only sort of accountability mechanism that's in place is um, are, are these various reporting steps that the, that the, that the uh, federal government would need to go through. So they need to put out, I can't remember what it is specifically, but, um, but they need to have sort of reporting every couple of years. They need to have sort of a stock take every couple of years. They need to put out, um, new uh, targets every few years. And if they don't keep up with those reporting, um, with those like reporting goals that are set out, that's, that's the fault there. They can be, it's like that. Um, again, I don't actually know what the consequence, what the consequence would be, but, but they're being held accountable to those reporting. They have to come up with a plan. I think it was, if you, if you, if you fail to do it and you have to come up with a plan to do it. Well, yeah. And then they have to continuously update that plan and continuously report on that plan and provide um, like report backs on progress as to that plan. And if progress isn't being met, then they have to continuously go back to the drawing board to rework it. But when you say that the UK is uh, financially responsible to itself for failing to meet its targets, does that mean that if it fails to meet its targets, then the government automatically puts money in a certain 
if climate targets aren't met in a place like the UK, well, in the UK with their climate accountability legislation, similar in like uh, New Zealand and Germany and and France, I believe, obviously, isn't that um, if the target isn't met, they automatically owe people money or they have to step down or whatever. That's not necessarily how it works. But what it does is because it is a legally binding um, climate framework, it means that it then empowers a public interest group or a stakeholder organization um, to then uh, lodge a lawsuit against their government for failing to meet that. And it provides sort of that like legal precedent and the ability to sue, which then could result in sort of, I don't know, whatever the court rules, whether that be financial or whether that be um, requiring them to go back and rework policy or, or whatever, but it's it allows them the ability the legal sort of right to sue, I guess, if, if policy isn't met or targets aren't met. Now to run through a bunch of environmental climate news from around the world. Farmers in India are still camped around New Delhi and have been for months and are not going anywhere. They have rations for at least another six months and are demanding that Narendra Modi repeal a law that will open up agricultural markets to larger companies, probably squeezing out smaller farmers and ultimately destroying their livelihoods. The small farmers say that many of them will starve if this law goes through. It is likely the largest mass demonstration in democratic history. Hundreds of them started a hunger strike a little over a week ago. Government authorities recently raided the offices and homes of journalists working for the progressive website NewsClick, which has been closely following the massive protests. They cut internet in certain areas to crack down on the protests. Police have put spikes in the roads to try to prevent people from coming and going. Demonstrations in support of the farmers have started in Edmonton. A new report out of the Natural Resource Governance Institute is saying that a good many oil-dependent governments around the world are currently planning investments in oil and gas projects that, put together, will themselves cause global warming to rise higher than 2 degrees Celsius. These are countries with nationally owned oil companies. China is currently greatly expanding coal, not because they need all the implied new electricity necessarily, but just in order to get money flowing through these electricity companies and local governments. South Korea is planning a $43.2 billion wind farm to be completed in 2030, which will be the world's biggest offshore wind farm. A study published in the journal Environmental Research has found that air pollution from burning fossil fuels, let alone every other kind of air pollution, has by itself been a major cause of death over the past several years, killing over 8 million globally in 2018. A glacier recently burst in the Himalayas, with 171 people so far missing. It could have been caused by global warming, or by major construction in the area, or it could be a freak event. CNN quotes local expert Ankal Prakash, who said, Climate change has altered the region to an extent that the frequency and magnitude of natural disasters will increase. 
There are many glaciers in the mountains of Peru that are threatening to break and flood the towns and farms and forests below. And a new study has recently come out showing that greenhouse gas emissions are directly linked to the melting of these glaciers specifically. These research findings could have implications for a local farmer who is suing the German electricity company, RWE, for $20,000 in damages from him having to protect himself from the imminent flooding and landslides. If RWE can be held responsible for glacial melt in Peru from its greenhouse gas emissions, one can imagine what it could mean for similar climate lawsuits against big polluters around the world. And finally, Brexit is clogging up the system, making it harder for some people in the UK to import bees to pollinate their crops, and there is also a pile of second-hand clothing building up in a warehouse meant for the EU, but going nowhere. All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week.